Hello, my name is Casey Rogers, and I'm your host for the Emerging Writer Series. This podcast is an exploration for what it takes for a writer to become a published author and how to sustain a professional writing career. Like many of you, writing is my passion, and I'm confident I know how to write a compelling story. But what holds me back is what holds many other writers back. How do we navigate a system that is about finding a bestseller rather than finding the best work? There are obstacles to our success, and many of them have nothing to do with the quality of our writing. In the next series of episodes, I'm going to speak with authors about their books and how and why they chose to write their stories within the frameworks of a specific genre. One reason people work with one type of genre is it helps people find your books. Another reason is that genre also gives the author a blueprint of sorts because each genre has a set of rules for the writer to follow. We'll explore what the needs and expectations are within these genres and why one may be well suited for your project. In this episode, I'm speaking with author Barak Krishnan, who calls himself a professional storyteller. We'll be talking about his trilogy, a political thriller series called Privilege. It's an epic saga about privilege and power, where the protagonist has to choose between the American dream and his own. It's been described as a mixture of Ocean's Eleven and House of Cards. He is always looking to make a political statement with his writing, because he knows politics seeps into every aspect of society and believes we can't understand each other without a firm, constant understanding of how politics affect us in all ways. So today on the show, I am welcoming Bharath Krishnan, and he is the writer of a book called Privilege. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Casey. You are more than welcome. This is exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about the book to begin with? I've read a lot of really wonderful reviews, and I know that you've won some awards and that you're in a lot of indie bookstores. However, if you can give our listeners a little rundown on what the book is about and then tell us a little bit about the genre and how you decided to write this. Sure. So this book is about an Indian American set in modern day New York City who steals a magical drug conceptualized as white privilege. And it was really born out of desire and an inability to really articulate the frustrations from my first career, which was I spent 10 years as a professional campaign manager for the Democratic Party. I traveled around the entire country. I worked in a dozen states. I ran campaigns at the local level, city council, school board, state legislature, that kind of stuff. And really started off of course, working for the Obama campaign way back in 2007. That's kind of where my where I got my start. And the, the president w- it was a community organizer himself. And so got really passionate about working to affect change 
at the most local level. So decided to see that fully through by working at these very hyper-local races. And what I found working in politics for, for that 10 years, I, I really saw a path from having elected the first African-American president to then going on the opposite end of the spectrum and electing Donald Trump in, in 2016. And so a lot of those frustrations I had with the system and, and with both parties found their way into, into this political thriller now privilege. Did you take a lot of your experiences and put them in the book, just changing things around and disguising truth as fiction? Sure. So no like actual verbatim stories of that stuff. I did write a political memoir, Confessions of a Campaign Manager, and you can find plenty of stories in that. What I did write here in Privilege was the, the archetypes you meet on political campaigns, whether they be self-important donors or conniving political operatives, or bumbling politicians, or ruthless politicians. A lot of that certainly came out into the book. But then also just, just the, the, the general feel. You'll read, if you read the trilogy, you'll come away feeling a little icky, a little mm -hmm. dirty. And that's very much by design. I think that anybody that has studied politics recently feels completely icky. It's really hard. I get you. I did a lot of campaigning for both the 2016 and 2020 election, and I've just had it. It's not that I don't think it's important. I think it's probably the most important thing that we can do, but I just feel like the system is stacked against us yeah. with the two-party system. Certainly, you, you got to give yourself some breathing room, and I'm, I'm having a wonderful time outside of the process. Yeah, and then I, I say to myself sometimes, is now the time to check out, or is now the time to go full <laughs> tilt? But anyway, we're not here to talk about politics, but about the political thriller. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you craft a political thriller, does it follow any kind of blueprint in a genre? I know a lot of genres, the romantic comedies, cozy mysteries, yeah. those kinds of things. There's an expectation of what the reader is going to get out of there. Sure. Is it the same way with a political thriller? Yeah, I'm an indie author, and so there's a lot more freedom that, that comes with it because I can mm -hmm. I can call it a political thriller, but insert my super cute romantic subplot just about all of my readers have determined is their favorite part of the book. But yeah, of course, there there are beats you have to follow. I, obviously, a genre is a statement you're, you're making to your readers, and so if they pick up a political thriller and they get a rom-com, they, they feel lied to, and it's, mm -hmm. it's certainly going to reflect on you as as an author and on your brand and future sales and and so it's important to, to stick to some beats and so some of those beats that that make it a political thriller I feel like thriller you luck out a little bit because you're going for vibes to a certain degree and so there's certainly the house of cards vibe in, mm -hmm. in my book and and also archetypes there's not only a presidential campaign in my trilogy but there's also a, a character who is very much modeled after Donald Trump. There's a character in there who's very much modeled after Barack Obama. There are clear archetypes that, that kind of ground the genre as, as well. It was difficult to figure out what exactly genre I wanted to go for. 
Initially, mm -hmm. I thought this was an urban fantasy. Mm -hmm. And then as I worked more and more with my editor, the analogy I kind of use, and I, I encourage authors, especially first-time authors who are, are having some difficulty navigating what genre, what subgenre, do I really want to tie myself down to a specific subgenre? If you're, if you're walking around an area and trees and greenery and wild animals, you're in a forest. And, uh, and once you're in a forest, you have uh, a, a roadmap for, for how to navigate that forest. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I hope that answered. I think it answered some question. I'm not sure. Yes, it absolutely answered a question. So now tell me, why did you decide to do this as a trilogy? Was it more the fact that you just have so much more to have fun with in terms of developing the characters and the plot? Or was that something that you set out to do from the very beginning when you first started writing? Sure. Privilege started off as uh, like a 30,000 word novella. And uh, I wrote it over the course of two weekends. I wrote it very quickly. And what I found out after talking to my editor about it was that there was so much to say here. It really justified much more examination. There's so much to, to be said here. And it took me a while to kind of hone my uh, elevator pitch. And I, I finally did it in um, kind of like a, a statement on my Goodreads page. And so I say, in this trilogy, you'll find an examination of the Indian American diaspora, toxic masculinity, racism as magic, misogyny, LGBT representation, and most importantly, an answer to the question, what does it take for an immigrant to succeed in America? Obviously, that's quite a lot of information to get into a 30,000-word novella. I expanded that into, into a 160,000-word trilogy. Wow. And I, I always pitch the first book, House of Cards meets Ocean's Eleven. There's very much a heist. And, and what I've realized is I can't pitch the trilogy like that because it, it's a bit of a lie. After you get out of book one, the camaraderie, the brotherhood is still there, but the heist itself is completely over after book mm -hmm. one. And book two, we get into into what, what I call a, a pre-campaign. Having worked on so many campaigns, there's always like a few months before you actually announce there's stuff going on. People are, are raising early money and traveling around the country and gauging interest and in, do people actually want me to, to run for office? And so book two examines that, that kind of pre-campaign period. And there are, there are legalization hearings that are going on at the same time in Congress over, over this magical drug. And then book three is the presidential campaign itself. So there's a time jump between books two and three as well. Do you have titles yet for books two and three? Oh yeah, absolutely. So actually you talked about the, the award I won in Ohio for, for <laughs> best adult fiction. That's actually for the entire trilogy. So right now the, the trilogy itself is out. Uh, so book one is privilege, book two is power, and book three is promise. The You can buy it as a combined trilogy right now, wherever books are sold. So did you write it that quickly? So the way it happened for me was you hear a lot as an indie author about the rapid release schedule. And so I wrote the three books around having this rapid release schedule. So it was like October, 2020, 
book one, November book two, December book three. And, and actually what ended up happening was I, I had a launch party and connected, I, I don't even remember how, but connected to Jenny Rosenblum through, through that enough that she wanted to come to my launch party. And then we, we got to talking and she said, Hey, you should check out Indies United. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'd be interested in publishing the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It's an omnibus. And, and so that's where we ended up. I'm actually, I'm actually working on the prequel right now. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. The prequel is actually three separate stories. I I really wanted to explore more about the the background of of some of the secondary characters in Mm -hmm. the, in the trilogy. And so there, there are three different stories, but there is of course the, the through line of this magical drug WP Mm -hmm. and how it affects all these people. But one thing readers will be very excited to know is, is I do talk about in, in Book one of the trilogy, I talk about the origins of WP and how it was discovered during the California Gold Rush. And so the prequel has a story dedicated directly to that. It takes place during the California Gold Rush. Oh, neat. I have never heard the term alt history. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things that I do in a lot of my writing is I use history to provide a context for the characters. So for an example, the book that I'm putting out takes place in 1974. Yeah. And the reason why I put the book in that year has to do with all of the things that were happening politically. And that was the year after Roe v. Wade. That was the year that Nixon ended up like resigning in disgrace. That was the year where gas prices, inflation, the Vietnam War, Kent State, all of these things were happening in the country that kind of mirror some of the things that we're experiencing right Right now, in terms of women's rights, at that point, women weren't allowed to get credit cards. Yeah. Women had to get a co-signer on the bank. Women were just starting to be allowed into medical school. So I placed it in that year because although I alter history in terms of not all of the things that I discuss in the book are factual, but I place it in history. You've been talking about the California gold rush. Do you place it in the facts of the gold rush or do you just use the gold rush as a launch pad for some of Oh yes, yeah, the I the latter definitely. And one one example of this is in in this world I've created, Barack Obama has been president. We've had the first African American uh, elected president. Barack Obama exists in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time there are tons of fictional politicians. There's an Indian American Senate majority leader, Mm -hmm. and there's a a Native American senator. That being said, of course, it's all pulled from places. You'll read this book and you'll be able to tell, oh, that guy's Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. Oh, that guy is, there's that guy's Donald Trump. Oh, that Mm -hmm. guy's what, whomever. So yeah, I definitely, Bob Iger says in in his memoir that uh, honor history, but don't revere it. That's how, yeah, that's how I like to interpret this kind of stuff. 
that's interesting. And I think it's so rich. I love history. I love studying history. It has so much to teach us, especially in the context of what we're seeing right now. We've been here before. Things have different names sometimes, Yeah, but they've all come about before. Yep. And it's just that right now, because of the pandemic, I think so many people are living in an alternate reality and they've been traumatized. And we know from studying trauma that trauma rewires your brain. And I think that what's happening is that if we didn't have to confront the pandemic, along with some of the other things that we're confronting, there would be a different outcome. Yeah. I don't think people would be able to ignore some of the things that they are looking at and not seeing, but they're able to put these blinders on because they are not thinking rationally if they ever did. Well, and I think on a human level, you know, I said earlier, you have to shield your heart. So many yes. things happen and are happening so quickly that I, I, I do feel for everyone. I feel for, for a lot of these Trumpists too, because- yeah. The world is changing so quickly. You, you got to cling to for dear life to whatever you understand. I, w- I was just talking to, to a colleague of mine at, at work a, a few days ago about how we're dealing with two national traumas of the pandemic and, and of January 6th. And fundamentally, both of those really shredded to dust for a lot of people what they thought America was. Those are both deeply traumatic events. And we know from science that after accepting a certain amount of trauma, the human body shuts down, sometimes physically and a lot of times mentally. So I I, I think that kind of explains part of it. I, I absolutely think it explains part of it. And I also think that there are certain expectations now that exist that may not have existed in the past in terms of things being revealed about our government. Oh, for sure. So it's opened a door for believing the worst. Yeah. And there wasn't social media during the Harding years. Exactly. You just said it perfectly. Yeah. I can't even add anything to that. <laughs> Let me ask you about the award that you received, or is it multiple yeah. awards? No, so it was, it was just one award. So I submitted, there's a great organization called the Indie Author Project. Mm-hmm. And the Indie Author Project is basically a way, it's a platform librarians use to get independent books into libraries and to celebrate independent books. It's it's really a labor of love from librarians nationwide. And so I, to be honest, I, I entered my book to the collection. I did not actually know at the time I was entering my book into a contest of any kind. And then uh, several months passed and I got an email last November that I had won this competition and I was flabbergasted. Actually, (laughs) I thought it was a joke for a long time. I did. I Googled who this woman was emailing me and yeah, I was convinced it was a hoax. But yeah, they they have regional contests. And and so I I won Best Adult Fiction for, for a 
Ohio. There's adult and young adult levels. So I, mm-hmm. I won best adult fiction for Ohio. And now there's a national, there's a national, of course. I, I believe it's going on. I don't think they've announced a winner yet. But yeah, whoever wins nationally, I'm sure there's a lot more benefits in store for them. But I, I didn't even know I'd entered a contest at the time. I was quite happy with my regional win. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And yeah. I recently had a conversation, a lovely conversation with one of the co-owners of a new bookstore that opened up in my area. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about you yeah. <laughs> because it's so important, I think, to support indie bookstores. Yes. There's a great comeback story for Barnes and Noble specifically, but indie bookstores as a whole in the New York Times about about a month ago. And a large part of it is because Barnes and Noble really embraced the indie mindset and have been able to to forge those kind of strong partnerships with with other bookstores. Kind of and we're all in this together mentality against against the behemoth that is Amazon. I personally have a real problem with Amazon on i've tried so hard to avoid them at all costs yeah it's it's impossible you got to exist in society unfortunately for, yeah. for better or worse yeah. trying to do what i can probably the greatest benefit of being with indies united is you're on a team it's really nice to to have a team and to not have to do it all by yourself and what that has meant for me in a large part is there's such a fantastic resource the publishing houses has developed of indie bookstores mm-hmm. assorted by state. And it was yep. literally an Excel spreadsheet. And mm-hmm. I drafted a, a generic email and just cold emailed all these bookstores. And now, of course, if it was like my state or I've worked in a number of states, so if I had a personal connection, I personalized the generic message. But it really doesn't take that, that much time. Mm-hmm. You write a generic message and you just sit down for maybe an hour a week for for a few weeks and you just get get all the messages sent out and see Mm -hmm. what happens it's all about just putting yourself out there i think one of one of the real benefits of being an indie author and it's also of course an obligation is the marketing aspect you could write the best book in the world but if you're not if you're not telling people about it 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 doesn't matter Has all the effort that you've put into this paid off? There's a lot of ways to take that. Financially, not yet, but I know it will. I'm actually (laughs) very close to to breaking even. And what I can tell all authors is the best piece of marketing advice I ever heard, which is the, the best marketing thing to sell your current books is to write your next book. From a personal fulfillment level, I'd say it's actually gone beyond my expectations. Yes. Certainly, I never expected to, to win this award and to and and to really more more than that, I can force my my cousins and and my wife and my siblings to to buy my book. But the total strangers, uh, not strangers, but like people I haven't spoken to since high school or mm-hmm. since college, or the friend of the friend who I post about my book on Facebook, I say, oh, that's really cool. And then I ask them if they want to buy it and they actually do want to buy it. That's really special. I think that you hit the nail on the head. There is such an inclination to some new authors to believe that they're going to write a bestseller 
and then they can retire. Yeah. And if there's one thing that anybody listening takes away from this, it's not how it works. You have to be totally in love with writing and getting your book out there because this is not a get rich quick scheme. Mm -hmm. There are authors out there that can make a living off of being an author There are people out there that supplement their income nicely being an author, but so much of it is about the satisfaction of writing a book and sharing what you've written with others. So yeah, I think that's great. Absolutely. And there is something very thrilling. Like I remember one of the proudest days I've ever had in my life was seeing my book in the local library. Yeah, that's that's a special moment. Yeah, or like hearing from other people that, oh yeah, I read your book. So yeah, it's a very special feeling. So that's wonderful. And you also mentioned something that, I've known about, but I've never heard the term before when mm-hmm. you talked about rapid release. Yeah. I remember talking to Jeff DeMarco about this very subject, but he didn't, I don't think he used that term. Yeah. So tell us more about that. So the thinking, and it's very much solid. I'm just not really smart enough for it. <laughs> uh, the thinking is you write a book. And it is, it just takes off like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you finish it and you say, man, I, I just, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't read book two right now. And so at, at the end, at, at the end of your novel, let's say you're reading it on Kindle, because I think something like 70% of, of Amazon book sales are, are through Kindle, mm-hmm. um, that might not be correct, but it it sounds correct. So let's just go with it. We'll go. So you finish book one on Kindle and it blows you away. There is on the very last page, thanks for reading my book. Click here to pre-order book two. And you click on it and it's, it takes you straight to the Amazon page. One click shop, you've put in a pre-order for book two and book two actually comes out in a week. And then you read book two and it's the same thing. Oh. Two things have to uh, happen. One, you have to write fast enough to accommodate that. And two, you have to be, I guess you don't have to be fairly confident that the book is going to take off like wildfire, but you're going to be very sad if, if the book does not take off like wildfire and you put all this time into your future releases in a series that mm-hmm. now is not selling. So could you address that and anything else that you can think of in terms of advice that you have to offer? Sure. As an indie author, I I do feel an obligation to to the entire indie community to put out the best product possible, where we're only as strong as our weakest link. And I think now with the Indie Author Project, with a bunch of indie competitions out there, there's the self-published fantasy blog off and now a sister science fiction blog off. And there's definitely never been a better time to, to be an indie author. The industry as a whole is, is more respected than it ever has been. But still, of course, you have people who say, if it doesn't work out, I'll just self-publish. That's a huge, that's an easy fix. 
that, right. that anyone can self-publish. And so I do feel an obligation to get the best product out there possible. And that, that involves hiring an editor. And I, I understand there's a significant financial cost to that. And that's why I serve on the board of an organization called Right Hive that awards scholarships for, for stuff just, just like this. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many tons of free resources, whether they be in the form of YouTube videos or whatever else with editing tips. You can self-edit for sure. If worse comes to worse, you can self-edit. You can put in the time uh, to learn what makes a really good editor. But I, I do think it's absolutely worth it to edit your work in some capacity. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people say like, oh, I got to hire beta readers. I got to hire sensitivity readers when they could benefit a lot more. If it's an either or situation, they, they could benefit a lot more by putting that money towards towards a de developmental editor or a copy editor. So that that's one piece of it. My, my second, and I'd say more important piece is just to get the words on paper. There's a market for, for just about everything. I read, I, I read novels pretty regularly now between my my nonprofit work and and between just my my friends and friends of friends who write stuff there's a market for, for everything so just get it on paper and, and you can find your people and and your people will help you find that market just 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 get it on paper so many times people will psych themselves out of putting pen to paper so I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for appearing Absolutely. on this show and good luck in the future. You mentioned something about Right Hive. Would you mind if I put that in the show notes? I would love it if you put it in there. They have their completely free virtual conference in just a couple of weeks. It's the weekend of June 10th. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me. You're very very welcome. In speaking with Barat, it was so refreshing to hear about his commitment to the excellence of writing on behalf of all indie authors and his inspiring involvement in Write High. I found it interesting to hear how his work as a professional campaign manager led to his crafting of a novel that incorporated characters that reflects what he saw in politics. I also learned some new aspects of marketing with something called rapid release, and also the term alt history. Is that what I've been doing all along but had no term to define it? Thanks so much for listening to the Emerging Writer Series podcast. There are so many wonderful writers out there with works to explore. Our goal is twofold. We aim to inform and inspire new writers on how to achieve their goals as well as highlight works by new, undiscovered, or noteworthy authors we admire. Feel free to send us your recommendations and we'll do our best to take a look. And don't forget to check out the line of writer-themed merchandise that supports our show at TwoBeansCafe.com as well as checking out the links for our guests on the show. Join me next time for my interview with Jake Cavanaugh, who tells us about writing an anthology called Impoverished Wealth. Until then, onward and upward.